0: Uh, to Redemption Church. Um, this morning, we're going to be continuing on through Joel chapter 2. Last week, we began um, looking at the book of Joel, just three chapters. And uh, last, one, last week, we took a, a look at Joel chapter 1. Um, so in just a second, we'll dive into Joel chapter 2. Uh, but before we do that, um, let me pray. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together today. God, thank you for the time of Um, worship we've already experienced when we've been able to, um, sing together where we were able to read scripture together and confess and hear, um, God, what, what you have done for us, what you will do for us. Thank you for those things, Holy Father. God, I pray now that as we dive in, um, to your word, that you would be at work among us, that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that we would hear your words, God, not my words, but your words. I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of peace and the gospel, that you would be glorified, that Jesus would be lifted high, and that we would be drawn to you because of that. And God, we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Joel chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 18 through 32. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, uh, it might be on the screen as well. But Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 32. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you, and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, For he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who who has dealt wondrously with you. My people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, And that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. My people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So last week we started working through the book of Joel, and we specifically looked at Joel chapter 1. And in Joel chapter 1 and in the beginning of Joel chapter 2, there's a lot of locusts and there's a lot of destruction. Um, And Joel chapter 1, if I'm honest, is kind of gloomy and it's kind of dark. And last week was a little bit dark too as we worked through Joel chapter 1 because we talked a lot about how sin and how destructive and damaging sin really is to us as individuals and to the world around us about how sin dehumanizes us and turns us into something less than God intended us to be when he created us to worship him. And how the locusts of Joel were both a picture of the destructive power of sin in our lives, but also a pointer to the day of the Lord, a day when the unrepentant would be judged, but those who've turned to God in repentance would be saved. And so the central idea of chapter 1 that we talked about is that God had used these locusts to deprive his people of the crops they needed for both worship and life. And he did that so that they would turn to him in repentance. Like God deprived them of their ability to ritually worship so that they would turn to him in true worship by rending their hearts by fasting. Not just externally worshiping by going through the motions but by actually turning their hearts to trust God instead of their own ways and their own sin. God was trying to get their attention. He was grabbing them and shaking them, trying to get them to see clearly how destructive their own sin was, how destructive sin was to them. He wanted them to see instead that he had something so much greater for them than their sin. Like, have you ever had an experience in your life that goes something like this? Maybe you received a gift. Maybe you got something where it seems like you were receiving the short end of the stick. But in reality, what you received turned out to be a blessing, turned out to be something really good for you. When I turned 16, I could not wait to get my driver's license. That's a pretty normal reaction, right, for people when they get... A little older you're ready for your driver's license i wanted the freedom that comes with having a driver's license and a freedom that would come with a car my family didn't really have a lot of money so i didn't really know how this was going to work out for me um and it didn't work out all that great uh, i actually ended up having to purchase my own car my own first car i bought it at a government surplus auction that the army corps of engineers was having um in the late summer of 1991, I paid, that was a long time ago, I, know, I paid $550 for a 1978 Chevy Love. It was already 13 or 14 years old when I bought it. It's a little bitty tiny pickup truck if you don't know what it is. But that pickup truck had holes in the floorboard so I could see the road when I was driving down the road. It had holes in the bed of the truck. It had holes in the sidewalls of the truck so that I could just put my arm straight through the sidewall of the truck. There was paint spilled everywhere in the bed of the truck. It had no radio. It had no air conditioning. It had terrible brakes. I can't believe that I survived with as many times as I spun out from the brakes. No power steering. And once you got above about 55 miles an hour, it would pop out of gear. So you'd have to grab the gear shift and put it back into gear. It was an all-around nasty, ugly, unsafe truck. And I can't believe I survived it. But not long after I bought this ridiculously terrible truck, my best friend in high school, a guy named Brad Carney, talked me into going on a date with this girl named Amy. Now, Amy's sitting right back over there. So, um, so for our first date, I went to pick Amy up in this truck. And uh, I drove her to a restaurant named Romeo's. It's across the street. Yeah, I know, right? It was across the street from Warren Baptist up on Washington Road. It's no longer there. So I drove to Romeo's, cut off the truck, cut off the ignition, got out of the car, and realized that something had gone wrong with the truck. And in in reality, the fuel pump was still pumping, even though I'd cut the ignition off. So it's our first date. It's a double date with Brad, my friend Brad, and his girlfriend at the time. It's his wife now, too. But I um, realized that something had gone wrong, and the fuel pump was still pumping, so I I couldn't figure out what to do, so I got down on the ground under the truck and disconnected the fuel pump before we went in to go eat. never occurred to me to just disconnect the battery. Like, I got down on the ground and disconnected the fuel pump, tied the, you know, whatever, so the, so the gas didn't leak out. So we go in. We have dinner. It's perfectly fine. Everything's okay. And we get ready to leave, and I have to get down on the ground and connect the fuel pump back together, get the car started. And then we went to see a movie. Um, it's a classic movie you're probably all familiar with. It was named Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, <laughs> right? But when we get there, I have to get down on the ground, disconnect the fuel pump, right? Go through the whole thing. You get the picture, right? It was a ridiculous turn of events. I was nervous about the date, didn't feel all that great, um, was mad about the truck, and it just sort of sounds like a disaster, Right? that was 28 years ago, and anyone that knows me or knows me well knows that the best part of me is actually not me, it's actually Amy, right? I have very few redeeming qualities, (laughs) but Amy's great, right? That truck was a catastrophe waiting to happen, but it's impossible for me to think about that truck and not think about that first date. Right? That Chevy love didn't feel like a gift when I got it. It actually felt like a curse. And when I was able to get rid of it, I was pretty happy. But on the other hand, part of the story of that truck is redeemed by that first date. Right? That first date that turned into 28 years. The locusts that show up in chapter 1 of Joel and the locusts that show up at the beginning of chapter 2 of Joel, which I didn't read about, they probably didn't feel like a gift to God's people. They probably felt like a curse. And yet, God redeemed the destruction of the locusts to bring his people to repentance, to show them who he was, to show them what he does for them, and to show them who they are in light of what God has done. The whole point of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 is a call to repentance. It's a call for the people of God to respond to him in repentance because of their sin. Their specific sin is never mentioned in Joel, but that's what Joel is about. Chapter 1, the first part of chapter 2, it's about a call to repentance. But in verse 18 of chapter 2, where we just read a second ago, the story takes a turn. And no longer do the people of God play the lead role in repentance In verse 18 of chapter 2, God takes the center stage. Let's read those first two verses again. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Yahweh... The covenant God of Israel, that's the name that's used here, Lord. Yahweh became jealous for his people, and Yahweh had pity on his people. The covenant God of Israel relents of the disaster of the locust, the locust that he sent. It says that in what we read. Relents of the disaster of the locust and promises instead grain, wine, and oil. Throughout the Old Testament, grain, wine, and oil are oftentimes used to be symbolic of God's blessings on his people. You see it in other places in the Minor Prophets and throughout the Old Testament. And they were, that grain, wine, and oil were part of the offerings that the people were were told to give in the temple. They were needed for life. And they are specifically mentioned in chapter 1 of Joel, right, as the things that the locusts were destroying and the things that the people of God were being deprived of. But here, in chapter 2, verse 18, God becomes jealous for his people and has pity on them, and because of that, leaves a blessing instead. When we think of jealousy, we don't typically think of jealousy as a thing that leads to blessing. We don't think of jealousy as a good thing. right? Jealousy usually carries negative connotations, the idea of possessive boyfriends or controlling spouses, Things like that. But that's not how we are to understand God's jealousy here when it says that the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Envy is the desire to gain possession of something that does not belong to you. Envy is the desire to exert control over something or some person that you have no right to exert control over. And it is always sinful. But God's jealousy, on the other hand, God's jealousy, we need to understand it as a strong desire for him to maintain relational faithfulness with his covenant people and for his covenant people to retain and to maintain that relational faithfulness with him. That's what God's jealousy is about. God, God's jealousy isn't sinful. Our jealousy can be sinful if it is unwarranted or expressed in the wrong ways, but it can also be an entirely appropriate desire. Unlike envy. A few years ago, I had a really good friend of mine who was married um, and he had an affair. And he made some really, really bad mistakes. And I remember sitting with him in my garage one night talking about what happens next. Where do you go from here? And as we began to have this conversation, I remember being completely flabbergasted for lack of a better word completely floored by what I heard because what I heard back from him was that he was telling me how he just wanted to get a divorce and move on from this relationship with his wife because he didn't want to do the hard work of reconciliation he lost all passion and desire to pursue reconciliation with his wife And it was in that moment that I realized that this was not just about a mistake he'd made. This was about something else. This was about him no longer having a passion for that exclusive relationship. And God's jealousy is his righteous and loving passion for the exclusive faithfulness of his people. God rightly loves his own glory and graciously loves us by pointing us to him And to his glory, because if God were to point us somewhere else, if God were to point us somewhere other than to himself, he would be pointing us away from that which brings contentment and satisfaction. So it's good for God to pursue his glory. It's good for God to be jealous for his people, because in doing so, he's being gracious and loving by pointing us to himself. And so God was jealous for his people, Because he just wanted them back. God wasn't trying to pay them back. God was trying to bring them back. And if God does not care when his people love idols, and if God does not care when his people love sin more than they love him, if he ceases to be passionate about that exclusivity, he would allow himself to be dishonored. And he would allow us to settle for so much less than what God intended for us. So who is God in Joel chapter 2? He's a jealous God. And his jealousy is good because he's calling his people back to himself. He's calling them out of their sin and he's calling them to to something so much better. Something that God intended for them from the beginning. Joel chapter 2 verses 18 and 19 begin to tell us a little bit about who God is. But I think the next question we need to ask as we move through this passage is, what is God doing for his people in Joel chapter 2? Look at verses 21 through 25 again. It says this, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. Did you catch... What verse 25 said. It's the most astounding verse in Joel. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. It's absolutely stunning. And it's a picture of the gospel right in the middle of Joel chapter 2. It's amazing. What Joel is talking about here, what this passage is talking about is retroactive restoration. This is God making up for what sin has destroyed. I will restore to you the years that the locust has taken from you. God tells his people that he, he, the party that was offended by their sin, he will replace, restore, and make up for all that sin had destroyed. Their life was not over. They returned to God, and God redeemed that which was destroyed. What an incredible picture of the gospel. What an incredible pointer straight to Jesus. What does God, what does God do in Joel chapter 2? He redeems. He restores. What does Jesus do? He redeems. He restores. It's incredible. Let me ask you a question. Have there been years in your life where it seems like the locusts have been swarming and destroying everything? Years where you were so focused on your sin and rebellion that you don't even remember God being present in your life. Years that were without Christ and you wanted it that way on purpose. Years where the consequences of your decisions still affect you to this day. Years where relationships fell apart, maybe a marriage, maybe a friendship, maybe family relationships. Years where you pursued some vain goal, some misdirected goal only to experience failure and regret. Years where there's just a lot of pain and hardship and suffering that you may not even be able to explain, like Job. The good news of Joel is that we don't have to live in the shame and regret of those years because God said he would restore the years that the locusts have taken. Joel, that Joel that obviously comes by God replenishing their grain and wine and oil. We've seen that several times in verse 26. says that God will give them plenty, right? And they will be satisfied and content in what God has for them. But look at verse 27. Look at, look at what it says. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. God's people here, the people of Joel, who have endeared so much by way of the locust, get to enjoy a communion with God, with the covenant God of Israel, that is unlike anything they've ever experienced before. God says, I will be in your midst. You will know that I am the Lord, your God, and there's none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Right? The same thing is true about Jesus. Because Jesus can restore the lost years by his very presence in our life. Our sins, our grief, our sorrows were all laid on Jesus. Our judgment fell on him. To use the language of Joel, our locusts swarmed all over him. And he gave up his life on a cross and then rose from the dead to defeat all the locusts and all the sin. And he offers himself to you. And in doing so, he says what no one else can ever say to you. I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And so who is God? God. He's a God jealous for his people because he knows that he's the only good thing for them. And what does God do? God restores the lost years. God restores the lost years. And when God restores the lost years, what does that mean for God's people? Who does that make us? Well, that makes us people for whom God has acted. People for whom God has redeemed, people that God has redeemed. We are God's people, recipient of God's redemption and restoration in Christ, who have the distinct identity of God's children. We just sang about that a minute ago. And in light of that, in light of God's redemption, how are we to live? Look at the remaining verses of chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Let me read them again. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Do you catch what Joel 2 verses 28 through 32 are saying here? God will pour out his spirit on all flesh so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God will pour out His Spirit so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that the first sermon Peter preaches in Acts 2 is based on this passage. Because at Pentecost, the day when God sent the gift of His Holy Spirit to His people, after Jesus' ascension, Peter recognized that what was happening in Jerusalem that day were these words from Joel beginning to be fulfilled in this new thing called the church. Because everybody present that day, praying together, waiting for the Holy Spirit, all of them began to speak about Jesus in languages they did not know, so that everybody present in Jerusalem could hear in their own language about who this Jesus was that redeems. Who this Jesus was that died on a cross and did something incredible. This Jesus who restores what the locusts have taken. And there's a lot that we can talk about in Joel's words. And there's a lot that we can talk about as these words begin to be uh, fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 and what that looks like even today. But I just want to point out something that I think is very important for us to grasp. I I want to point out a simple Truth here that's wrapped around the idea that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Right, Joel says that, and then he qualifies that by saying, sons and daughters will prophesy, old and young will see visions, servants will receive the spirit as well. And so in this passage, he talks about male and female, about young and old, those who have power and those without, that's servants both those who are from Israel and those who are not. Again, um, wrapped up in the idea of a servant being somebody from Israel and a servant being somebody who was not from there. But Joel says, All flesh will receive God's Spirit so that they can speak about God so that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in Acts 2, when Peter preaches this sermon, that has happened. It's beginning to happen. The Spirit has been poured out on both men and women both young and old, both those with power and those without, both those from Israel and those not. But here's the specific application of that that I want us to grasp. And it's really important that we grasp this, I think in in light of a larger conversation that's going on in the church today, at least in Western society. Here's what I want us to see and grasp. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on women and men in the same way and for the same purpose. So that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that we all, men and women, both, will be empowered to glorify God and accomplish the mission that God has given to his church. The gifts that the Holy Spirit gives for these purposes are distributed to both women and men. And the completion of Jesus' great commission to make disciples calls on all believers, male and female, to be released and mobilized to put these gifts into action. If I can draw on the wisdom of Jen Wilkin for a second. Jen Wilkin said, a church can only truly thrive when both men and women are thriving together. We have to realize that unless men and women are both flourishing in the mission of the church and the mission that Christ has given us to speak about this God who redeems the lost years. Unless men and women are both flourishing in the mission of what God has called us to, then we are something less than what God intended and we are something less than what Joel is talking about here. And men who would seek to silence or minimize the role of women in the church. Men who would tell women to go home and to be quiet. Those men are concerned with things like power and control. And they are missing the mark. Because what we should be concerned about is seeing the salvation and discipleship of everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And God has poured out his spirit that men and women both would be about that task. That's why God poured out his Holy Spirit on these folks in Acts. That's what Joel talked about. And so church, let's be a church where men and women flourish together. Where we use our gifts, specifically the gift of the Holy Spirit and other ways that God has gifted us. To be about what God has called us to be about to proclaim the excellencies of a God who redeems the lost years so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how are we to live? What do we take away from this? Let's recognize that those of us who have repented and trusted God's ways, we are people redeemed by God, a God that has redeemed the years that the locusts have taken. A people for whom God has acted. Recipients of God's redemption and restoration in Christ. We are God's redeemed people, uniquely empowered and gifted to be about God's purposes. So let's be about God's purposes. That's what we need to take away. In word and deed, let's be about the proclamation of the gospel. The reality that Jesus redeems the lost years. And let's talk about it so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For those of us who may not know what it means to repent, like Joel 1 was all about, those of us who don't know what it means to turn to God in repentance, I want you to know that God can redeem the lost years of your life. God will do it. God is faithful to do it. And if you want to know more about what it means to repent and turn to God, if you want to know more about what it means for God to redeem the lost years, well, let's talk about that once we're done. I'll be happy to talk to you about that, Ben or Brent or anybody else will as well. We're going to enter into a time of response. And as we enter into this time of response, um, let me urge you to continue to reflect upon what it is that God has called us to do and who God has called us to be. And we can respond in these ways. The band is going to come up here in just a second and lead us in a time of worship by singing, give, give us an opportunity to continue to sing together and worship that way. During this time, we have an opportunity to continue to worship by giving. There's a giving basket in the back where we can put our tithes and offerings. There's some instructions back there on other ways to give as well. During this time, we have an opportunity to sit where we are, to reflect, to pray, to think about what the Holy Spirit is saying to us and doing in our hearts and lives this morning. And during this time, we have an opportunity to take communion. On either side of the stage here, there's um, a table set up where you can come down these side aisles, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. When we come and take communion, what we're doing and what Scripture tells us that we're doing is that we're remembering what Christ has done and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to come and take communion. If you can't remember what Christ has done, if you can't proclaim that you believe it, well, then then, then don't come and do this. But if you're here and God gives you the freedom to do so, then come and take communion and let's remember what Christ has done and let's proclaim together that we believe it. And that it's good and true. I'm going to pray for us and we'll move on. God, thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of the great things that you've done. God, thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of who you are. Of how you've acted on our behalf. Of what that means for us. And how that changes us and points us in a new way and a better way to live. God, I pray over the next few minutes as we continue to respond and worship As we remember and proclaim our belief, as we sing, as we do all these things, God, I pray that Christ would still be the central focus of our time together, that Christ would be lifted high and that we would be drawn to you by Christ alone. Holy Father, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.